I don't know about you, but I've kind of been confused through the years about how the idea of this jolly old man in a red suit with a sack full of toys for every good little girl and good little boy has the ability to travel around the world in one evening in a sleigh pulled by eight little reindeer uh, and over the course of evening stop by every house with every good little child that's going to receive a gift and drop that off, whether they have a chimney or not, it doesn't matter. He's somehow going to make his way in there, and he's going to deliver just the right present to that well-deserving youngster within its confinements there. Now, how could, in reality, that be accepted by so many intelligent people? And yet it is. Matter of fact, it's, it's a propagation that is incomprehensible, and yet somehow it's ever-expanding if every generation comes into this world, more and more of this story begins to develop. You don't have to know how. You simply just have to believe is often the response. It's hard to believe something that can't be corroborated with facts, especially in Missouri. After all, I mean, we're the show-me state, right? We've got to see it to believe it. And we say seeing is believing, but the truth is you don't always have to see to believe. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The miracle of Christmas is discovered really in the miracle of the method of how things took place. God's ways are really beyond our understanding and beyond our comprehension. And, 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 and in the moment of his birth, God entered into this world in a manner that, that makes people stop and consider the, the, just the, the aspect of the incarnation that we really can't grasp our mind around. I mean, how could the glory and the majesty of heaven be contained in an intricately small package such as a newborn babe? Isn't he not the God who cannot be contained in any house or anything? He's, he's, he's so magnificent and so mighty and so all-encompassing that nothing can encompass him. And yet, this God of the universe who cannot be confined by anything is presented in such a tiny little gift. I mean, surely as Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I think in that statement we discover the fullness of this meaning of the miracle of Christmas and the method in which he chose to display himself. Now, in the movie, The Miracle on 34th Street, as we've been kind of taking little clips and bits from there, Fred Gailey has decided that he's going to defend Chris Kringle in court to prove to the Supreme Court of New York that Chris is, in fact, the Santa Claus. Now, everyone thinks he's just as crazy as Chris, and they begin to question his, his sanity and his method as an attorney. 
And, and so he's probably not even going to have a job, so he quits anyway. Now, when we think about this, even Doris, who has begun to become affectionate towards him, her belief in all of this mixed-up situation, but, but Fred makes a good point when he makes this statement. And I want you to watch it in just a second and look for this. He says, faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Let's watch. Hello. Sorry I'm late. Get your coat. I reserved our regular table at Luigi's. We're going to celebrate. What are we celebrating? Read all about it. Daily throws bombshell in New York Supreme Court. Yes, I read that. Oh, I didn't see this. Front page. Good, good. You're not serious about this. Of course I am. But you can't possibly prove that he's Santa Claus. Why not? You saw Macy and Gimble shaking hands. That wasn't possible either, but it happened. Honestly, It's Fred. the best defense I can use. Completely logical and completely unexpected. And completely idiotic. What about your bosses, Hayslip and Mackenzie and the rest of them? What do they say? <laughs> that I'm jeopardizing the prestige and dignity of an old established law firm. And either I drop this impossible case immediately, or they will drop me. See? I'd be to it. I quit. Fred, you didn't. Of course I did. I can't let Chris down. He needs me, and all the rest of us need him. Look, darling, he's a nice old man, and I admire you for wanting to help him. But you've got to be realistic and face facts. You can't just throw your career away because of a sentimental whim. But I'm not throwing my career away. But if Hayslip feels that way, so will every other law firm in town. I'm sure they will. Then I'll open my own office. And what kind of cases will you get? Oh, probably a lot of people like Chris that are being pushed around. That's the only fun in law anyway. And I promise you, if you believe in me and have faith in me, everything will... You don't have any faith in me, do you? It's not a question of faith. It's just common sense. Faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. Oh. Don't you see? It's not just Chris that's on trial. It's everything he stands for. It's oh, kindness Fred. and joy and love and all the other intangibles. Oh, Fred, you're talking like a child. You're living in a realistic world, and those lovely intangibles of yours are attractive but not worth very much. You don't get ahead that way. That all depends on what you call getting ahead. Evidently, you and I have different definitions. Oh, these last few days, we've talked about some wonderful plans. And then you go on an idealistic binge. You give up your job, you throw away all your security, and then you expect me to be happy about it. Yes, I guess I expected too much. Look, Doris, someday you're going to find out that your way of facing this realistic world just doesn't work. And when you do, don't overlook those lovely intangibles. You'll discover they're the only things that are worthwhile. Well, when we consider that, I think a lot of people look at Christians the same way. How can you believe in something? How can you throw your life away doing that? But faith is believing in things when common sense tells you not to. You see, the world just doesn't understand. They don't get it. They can't comprehend, therefore it can't be real. There's no way that it could happen. But faith is what motivates us to do things differently than what the world expects. You see... That's exactly what God did when he sent his son into this world. His method for salvation did not make sense to the people back then, and to many people today it still doesn't make sense. Why would God Almighty come into this world in, in a position of vulnerability and offer himself up to where they would actually be able to kill him so that 
he could demonstrate his love? Part of the miracle of Christmas is, is the miracle of the method. So the first thing I want us to understand is that the, the, the God's method, is, they transcend us. It's beyond our ability to think and, and, and our comprehension. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. He said, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul begins this doxology of praise to God, and he's focusing on the greatness of God and how absolutely wonderful he is. His riches, his wisdom, his knowledge. You know, you, you think about that they're beyond our, our ability to measure. We, we cannot really say how intelligent he is. We cannot really say how wealthy he is. We cannot say anything about him because all we know is what we know in life. And we're still discovering things on a daily basis. We're still learning things, and yet he understands and knows it all. His methods are beyond our understanding. And honestly, when you think about God's methods throughout history, but particularly in the Christmas story, it makes about as much sense as someone trying not to only prove the existence of Santa Claus, but then having the Supreme Court rule about his true identity, who he is. There's no way we can do that. So he chose to redeem mankind in a most certainly unique way. But God made that choice to do it his way and not ours. He chose to reveal himself in the greatest, grandest possible way, in a way that eventually we really could understand because we'd be able to relate with him. So he came into this world as a helpless, defenseless baby. And God chose to be born in a, to, to humble common folk in an obscure village outside of Jerusalem a few miles. And he wasn't born in a palace, but rather he was born in a stable. He was born to a young couple whose hearts were pure and had found favor with God. And they were plain, normal, seemingly insignificant people just in a crowd. You probably would not have noticed them. And yet... On the world stage, they were the ones that God chose to be the parents of Jesus. In Job 11, chapter, Job chapter 11, verse 7, he says, Can you find out the, how deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You see, we're not meant to understand all the details of things. Not within this world. We, we can grasp as much as we can comprehend, but there's so much more. And one of these days, we'll be able to see it and fully understand why God has done the things that He has done. But then I don't think it really will matter, will it? We shouldn't be surprised at God's methods. Think about it. He chose Abram at the age of 75, told him, I'm going to send you to a place. You just go where I send you. 
to a land of promise. He chose Joseph, who was the next to the youngest son of Jacob, to become the savior of his family. And yet in the midst of his being hated by his brothers and beaten up by his brothers and sold into slavery to his brothers and then sent off into Egypt to be a servant and a slave there and through years in prison because of lies and deceit, finally he rises to a position and he's able to save his people. He chose Israel, one of the most least significant nations, to become his people and his nation. He chose Bethlehem, a small, uh, tiny little spot on the landscape of Israel to become the place where his son would be born. He, he chose David, a shepherd boy, rather than one of the other bigger brothers to become the next king of Israel. I mean, do you see a pattern that's revealed here? Over and over again, God does things outside of what we would classify the best route. He does it his way. God chose plain, ordinary people through whom he could do extraordinary work beyond their own capabilities. Luke records for us his account of the life of Christ's birth that Mary and Joseph, when they traveled to Bethlehem, to register for, this, for the census. So in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Luke says that in those days a decree went out from Caesarea, from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. I mean, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. You see, while they were on their way to register for the census in Bethlehem, a time came for the baby to be born. And as you and I know, babies come when babies come. And we're discovering that even today, you know. It doesn't matter what I want. It matters what time the baby's supposed to be born. I don't know about you, but when it's time for our children to be born, I, I don't think I could have convinced Marisa to take a 70-mile trip on foot or even on a donkey, you know, to, to go to do something that the government says we should do and wondering whether or not she's going to have that baby on the journey or we might make it there in time. But that's exactly what had to transpire. They were going to leave Nazareth and travel south to Bethlehem about a 70-mile journey not on Amtrak or in that smooth Lincoln Continental. Yeah, it was rough terrain, and it wasn't going to be an easy trip. And yet, even though she wasn't fully married to him, they were betrothed, she went. 
Now, part of the story is kind of sketchy when it comes to the actual birth. We don't know if she was all by herself or if there were other ladies, if there were midwives, if there were doulas, or if there was doctors. We, we have no clue about all those details. All we know is that they get into, Jeru- into Bethlehem and it's crowded because so many people are coming back into town so that they can register and the hotels are all booked up. Bed and breakfasts, man, they're, they're solid sold. So what are we going to do? They find a place, probably not the best place. But we know that Jesus was born that night and the angels rejoiced with exceeding great joy because a Savior was born. So Mary then, at the birth, she wraps him and swaddles him tightly in, in these, just these claws to keep him warm and she lays him in this manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now a manger... That's a, that's a feeding trough for animals. They stayed in an animal stable. Now, I've spent the night in a few barns, and I've enjoyed it, you know, or out in the stables and stuff during the, during the county fair with my horse. And, but, you know, it's not the same as what was happening here. Not even uh, anything that could have been remotely similar to those things. Now, I want you to picture first ever a moment... What we think about a stable or a barn is probably not what actually took place there. It may not have been the kind of stable that you and I often think about when we see images of a manger scene. In many of the houses of Israel, the people lived above on the second floor or third floor. But on the first lower level was a place where they kept their domesticated animals, whether it be a cow or a goat or their horses or whatever else. Those were there because even in the cities, they had to be able to get their own milk. They had to make their own cheese. They had to make it. So it was always right there for them. And so a lot of the houses had, on the first floor, a stable area. Upstairs may have been many rooms, such as an inn or bed and breakfast or whatever you might call it, but, but that wasn't the case. And so even sometimes on the lower level, if they didn't have the stable down there, they might have their own business, the woodworking shop or their candle store or whatever they've got so that people then could enter and interact with the business off the streets. So Mary and Joseph were given a place but it wasn't a comfortable place. Joseph, probably being the good husband that he was, probably tried to clean the room up, bring in some fresh hay or straw and lay it down so that it might be a little more clean, a little more comfortable. But it was still what we would classify a barn. Whether it was at the base of the house or in a cave or out in a wooden structure somewhere, it doesn't matter. The fact is, he's not being born in a hospital He's not even being born in, in somebody's, you know, uh, master bedroom. He's being born in a place that most women would say, not in here. The second thing I want you to understand is this, that God's methods, while they transcend us, they also include us. All right? To celebrate the occasion, the angels announced the news of Christ's birth, but to whom did they go and share this wonderful news? I mean, it was wondrous news. They go shepherds. They don't go to the king or the governor or, or the emperor 
let them know that the Savior of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords has now been born. They, they go to shepherds. They don't even go to the religious leaders or the military generals. It, it doesn't matter. They're trying to go. He, he allows them to choose this grand announcement to simple shepherds who are refilling their responsibilities out in the fields that night. And they're the first ones who get the news. God uses ordinary people to establish ordinary, extraordinary things. So let's go back to the book of Luke, chapter 2, and, and beginning in verse 8. And we're going to read on down through verse 20. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, Josh talked about fear earlier, and I guess this is the kind of fear we ought to have, you know, rather than the fear of what this world's going to... All of a sudden, they are stunned that shepherds are there. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Pause. Okay, you're going to communicate this wondrous news to shepherds out in the field, outside the city... But yet, this is great news for everyone. Why didn't you just announce it to everyone? Well, remember, his methods are not ours. And so he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. Now when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds they said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds, they returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now when Maurice and I announced the birth of our children... It was to people that we highly valued in our life. You know, they had a great place in our heart, people who cherished a relationship with us. We knew they loved us, and they knew that we loved them. And, and so we simply chose to announce to them, and not to a world. We didn't shout it from the mountaintops. Now, I'll probably do that about my grandchildren. That's a difference right there, right? But it was a private thing. We simply wanted those who loved us and whom loved in return to know the blessing that God has given us. And I kind of think that God probably isn't much different than, than us in that aspect. And so he tells those who love him and whom he loves about this wonderful birth. Now, I want you to think about another miracle and the method in which things transpire for just a moment as well. Following Jesus' growing up, he is confronted by the leaders of the community, of the religious community, and, and they eventually crucify him on a cross, and, and he's buried in a borrowed 
grave. But then he comes back to life. The resurrection, I mean, that's a powerful thing. And, and, and so he rose from the dead. But, but Jesus first appeared to a group of women, which when you think about it, back in that day and age, that would not have been who you'd have gone to first. I mean, I would have thought that it would have been me doing that. I would have come up, and there would have been a light show, you know, and pizzazz and pop, and, and I'd been walking down the street, and somehow music would be playing throughout the sky, and everybody would know I'm alive again, and I'd go straight to the palace and take my seat. But that's not what Jesus did. It's because his methods are not mine. His ways are not my way. He does things different than then. And so we have to see that, that what he does is totally different than anything that we would have done. And from a human perspective, maybe we want things a little flashier. I mean, at least I thought that's what they wanted back then. What? You're not going to overthrow the government? You're, you're going to what? Die on a cross? That's not who they wanted. They had better methods. But God's plan was different. And so he rose from the dead and he appeared to just a few people, to his disciples, to those who loved him. The most he ever really showed his face to at one time was 500. But it made the difference. Because in just those few people, it's changed the world. When you think about the magnitude of what Jesus did, the salvation of the world raised in the hands of just a few followers that was going to be able for them to, to change the world. Just They were simple, ordinary guys, but they had taken note they had been with Jesus. That was the difference. And it was obvious they had been with Jesus. And so his plan was then going to be changing this world in its radicalness one person at a time. And it's still happening even today. One person at a time. Now, it may happen that all of a sudden there may be 3,000 that say, oh, we wouldn't believe. And then they're baptized and, and they become a part of the, the church as it grows. And, and daily they were doing that. Paul commented on this miracle of God's method that God uses ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary work when He wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26-29. through 29. He said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Is that an underhanded slam? <laughs> you weren't brilliant people. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God that they did it. He does it His way. And God's methods haven't changed. He still uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary work. Our abilities are not as important as our availabilities. God has entrusted to us the good news of salvation. 
you know, and I think it's really good that God can even use the simplest vessels in this world to carry out his plan to accomplish great things. Because that means he can use me. And he can use you. And this world can be changed. This is God's methods. But the third thing is this. God's methods, they really set us apart. They sanctify us. Where we couldn't do it on our own. You see, this aspect of the miracle that we need to really understand is that God is at work in our lives in ways that we do not and cannot fully comprehend. In the same way that that we would have written the script differently concerning the redemption of mankind, we would also write the script differently about our own sanctification. We would do it our way, wouldn't we? But once we begin the spiritual journey through faith in Christ, we would be ever growing in our love and devotion for Him. Is what we need. We would never have any problems. Life would be a heavenly bliss until the day that we finally arrive at our eternal home, and that's probably the way we would plan it. But he doesn't do it that way. He still allows us to struggle. He still allows us to, to go through problems. and We experience pains and pressures and struggles and sicknesses. We experience temptations and failures. And we take one step forward and somehow it seems like we're still taking three steps back spiritually. Because we cannot achieve it on our own. There are victories and celebrations that are accompanied by defeats and despairs. And it's not the way that we would have it. We'd want easy street. But he sanctifies us through the hardships of life as well as the easy areas. You see, when God steps into our world, he changes things. And this tiny baby who was born into the world turned the world on its ear in order that he might purify it from all unrighteousness. And we then would seek to be made holy by His methods and by His design. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 through 18 says. If I can get there. Or verses 5 through 18, sorry. For what it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than than the angels. And you crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while, while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering." 
For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I tell you of your name, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now when we consider all these things, you think about this, he says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, that's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect. In every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, God's plan is different. Now, I can't answer all the questions as to why some things have happened in your life. Why do you have to struggle here and suffer there? Why do you, some people have pain and others not? Why are some people sick? I, but I can tell you that when going through those circumstances, you're not alone. And we don't understand why we're not left just to despair that God would actually unite with us in this. But we can trust that God is at work in those moments for something that's good. And we may not see it until later on in life, but we must choose to believe that God is working to shape us and mold us into becoming more like Jesus through all those things. It requires us to believe in what he has promised in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. Even when the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to be the mother of God's son, it was going to create problems for her. And I don't think there was any way she could have predicted what that revelation was going to mean to her either. She was going to pour her heart into this little baby. And she was going to challenge this young boy. And she was going to push this young man into doing his ministry. And then she was going to watch him die. Helpless. See, Joseph had no idea what would be involved when he obediently responded to the angel's message not to divorce Mary, but to take her as his wife and to raise that child. Joseph and Mary probably endured shame, accusation, embarrassment, everything that goes with having a baby out of wedlock. But they also experienced the miracle of seeing God become flesh right before their very eyes. They saw it. Emmanuel. 
And then to be interrupted by shepherds who are telling you of the angels and, and who this child is when you already knew who this child was. You think about all these things. God is at work in all of this, and he's producing a beautiful tapestry in our lives. But the problem is we don't see sometimes the tapestry and the picture that's laid out there. It's as we're on the back side of it where all the threads are crossed, and, look, and you can't figure it. What is this mess? And that's all we see. And we look at our lives, and we see the mess in which our lives are, and we think, how can anything be so beautiful And why would God love me so much? But there comes a point when we're going to look from top down and see the tapestry of our life from His perspective. And we'll see all the intricate weavings of the colors and the things that make it so beautiful. And then we'll know. See, God's methods are not our methods. His ways are not our ways. We just need to continue to trust God, even though you don't understand how He is at work in your life. Continue to follow Him, and I guarantee you that your life will be richly blessed. Maybe not on this earth. And the blessings may not be money, but I'm telling you, Blessings do come. The miracle of the method that God uses ordinary people like you and me to accomplish extraordinary things for the sake of His kingdom is is powerful. The miracle of the method is also that God is at work in our lives in ways that, that we don't understand. And therefore, we need to just trust Him to know to be true to Him so that He can use us for glorious things. We must choose to believe when common sense tells you not to. He's at work weaving a beautiful tapestry in your lives, and one day we'll see that. A baby conceived to unwed parents born in a barn. A family then later must flee their home and travel to a country of Egypt that they're not familiar with to save their lives because now they're political refugees because the king is after them. A family which eventually settles back into a boring little town of of Nazareth and a boy who eventually grows up to rejected by everyone and and, and that's in his hometown and they don't respect him anymore and they're going to try and kill him so he's got to leave. And a, a baby born would one day be rejected by all top authorities and religious people who are supposed to love him and sentence him to death then. He dedicated himself to loving those who weren't supposed to be loved and he was killed for it. Yet into this dark world of sin and brokenness, Jesus comes and He shines a light. Jesus comes and He enters a world of darkness in which it seems that there is no hope, no peace, no, no, no momentary collapsing joy is all that is there. And the love that seems to be built on conditions and fragile commitments, Jesus comes into this world and He sparks a new light and a new life for each one of us. Jesus comes into this world and he gives hope to the hopeless by extending grace to people who who could never prove themselves to be worthy of anything on their own. He comes into a world and he brings peace by restoring a fractured relationship between God and the world that he loves so much. He comes into the world and he ignites joy by providing a way that we could never make it on our own and a way to feel secure in eternity. He comes into the world and He extends love 
to people who think there is no reason that they could ever be loved by anyone. You see, the miracle of Christmas is not that Jesus appeared and that he ushered in an automatic fairy tale ending where everybody gets what they want. I mean, movies and television, they lie to you. Christmas isn't always a happy ending. The miracle of Christmas is found in the method that Jesus appeared and he entered our fractured and broken world. And into that dark world, he shines a light that brings to us a way of new life and redemption. We can be redeemed and restored. Jesus is the true light of the world. And at his birth, he brought hope. He brought joy and peace and love for all of mankind. And he shares his hope with us. And we're called to share that same hope with everybody else. He shares his peace with us. And we're called to share that peace with a world that that's what they're searching for is peace. And he shares his joy with us, and we're called to share that joy to the world. And ultimately, he shares his love with us. And it's hard for us to understand it, but yet we're called to love the world, even when they don't love us. Jesus shines his light upon us and we're called to shine that light and to be a light in the world. That's the true miracle of Christmas. And the method in which God has used, we may not really understand or get it. But his ways are not our ways. And our thoughts are not his thoughts. But his are so much higher and so much better than ours. God makes room in his heart for you. And because of that, we now have hearts that are redeemed and restored. We have hearts of hope. We have hearts of love and peace and joy. And what we're called to do is, is that all of us right here at this moment in the world, we are called to put our faith in something that is not tangible. To believe that God of the universe entered into this world in the form of a tiny baby so that we can be saved. But in your heart, are you willing to give Him room when it seems there's no room in the end? Are you willing to let Him birth in you a new life that is the light of men that's going to overcome this world? That's really the, the call for us today. There is a miracle of Christmas. And it's found in Jesus. It's found in this simple birth of a baby. And yet it was not so simple at all. I pray that you, you get a glimpse of it and that it becomes revolutionary to you. And then when you see that little manger scene, 
that there's something different about it. Rather than just a little family on a farm having a baby. But it's God and His love. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we are thankful for Your grace, Your mercy, Your love, your, the hope You give us, the joy that fills our lives. And Father, it's, it's unspeakable joy. We, we can't really describe it when we, when we finally get it. And what you've done for us, the miracle of, of the method of sending yourself into this world contained in the flesh of an innocent child. Father, I don't get it. Why don't you just open up the heavens and, 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 and just declare from on high that you love us and you want to redeem us. And yet you somehow silently slip in and you're still doing the same thing today in our hearts when we least expect it when we least think that we deserve it when we find ourselves so unworthy of anything we all of a sudden hear the message of your love and father that's miraculous we thank you for the birth of Jesus what it does to our hearts it's in his name we pray. Amen.